Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. All right, good morning and welcome to CounterPoints. The Hunter Biden fallout continues. We're going to start with that. We're going to talk a little bit today about what Barack Obama has to say. Ryan, I think you have some thoughts on this. He said wealth got concentrated. And, it and just that happened. caused some problems. Yeah, that wealth, it just got concentrated. <laughs> we'll see. Ryan's been spending some time with Sagar this week, so I'm curious to see if he's um, been radicalized in the other direction. We'll so see. Maybe yeah. I'll be on the left in that one and, and Ryan will be on the right. Maybe. <laughs> Uh, and then we're going to get to Donald Trump. There's a court date that was announced uh, for his documents trial and all kinds of stuff continues to happen in the 2024 campaign because he sat down with Brett Baer yeah, for a pretty it. interesting interview. So that is coming up. We're going to talk about the ruling that is expected on student debt from the Supreme Court next week. We're going to talk about Andrew Tate's case. Ryan has a great monologue prepared for everyone on Venezuela. I'm going to talk a little bit about the tragedy unfolding at sea right now as the Titanic rescue efforts continue. And we're super excited to be joined once again by Justin Goodman from White Coat Waste, who's going to talk to us about more lab leak evidence that uh, White Coat Waste and others have been uncovering. Ryan, uh, that's a lot. That's a, that's a lot for, for one day, but the news oh, doesn't... And the Supreme Court uh, is possibly going to gut the administrative state. Yes. Make sure you uh, don't get student debt relief and eliminate affirmative action. We're going to talk about their upcoming cases. Yes, we're expecting Supreme Court cases next Thursday, I believe, starting next Thursday. And that'll all be going on next week. So some big changes could be happening to the country um, in the next week or so. You wanted to mention a little bit about Virginia at the top here. Oh, yeah, real quickly. In, so in, in Virginia, there were primaries last night. Uh, the Working Families Party endorsed seven candidates, which is a pretty decent proxy for kind of the 
progressive versus kind of centrist, moderate, pro-business wing of the party. And of those seven, uh, five of them swept, including uh, knocking out a couple incumbents who had been there for a very long time. One of whom calls himself a Joe Manchin Democrat, another of whom had been pretty right-wing Democrat. Uh, the, the Virginia Senate, Virginia House are going to be much different than they were before. Uh, Dick Saslaw, who's the I think has been Senate president since Thomas Jefferson, uh, like founded that state, probably even before that, uh, is retiring. He had this amazing quote uh, in the Washington Post where he said, where he said, uh, uh, why do you want to run these people out of office? He's talking to the voters about these incumbents that are getting beaten. And he says, vote for me. I'm different. (laughs) That's their whole thing. (laughs) So he's angry that these... uh, candidates ran saying that they're going to do something different right. and that voters elected them on that platform. Yeah, it's confounding really it why confounding. people would want something just, new. <laughs> it's so crazy. It just might work. I think Barack Obama might have an answer for him. Yes. <laughs> we'll get to that in the next segment. But for now, the fallout from Hunter Biden, uh, again, Ryan and Sager covered this yesterday, but he is going to plead guilty to two tax misdemeanors. He struck a deal with federal prosecutors where they are resolving that felony firearm charge. um, And that was all announced by the DOJ yesterday. They're going to recommend a sentence, just a probation for those tax charges. That was in 2017 and 2018. He owed like some $100,000 in federal taxes in 2017. And then, yeah, Yeah. at least 100,000 in 2018 as well. So this is, you know, the, you have right off the bat, Tucker Carlson, he's got his new show on Twitter, comes out swinging uh, with an episode, and we have some uh, sound from that here. This morning, Hunter Biden pleaded guilty to pretty much nothing. Biden pled to two misdemeanor tax evasion charges, then entered a diversion on a federal gun charge. That's it. As far as Merrick Garland's Justice Department is concerned, Hunter Biden is done. There was no pre-dawn raid carried live simultaneously on CNN. There was no perp walk, no handcuffs, no press conference. Above all, there was no felony. Hunter Biden, who broke federal gun laws, can still carry a gun. It's like it all never happened. In fact, the Justice Department just baptized Hunter Biden. A lifetime of sins washed away in an instant. It was a secular miracle. Most miraculous of all, Hunter Biden somehow escaped a ferret charge. FARA is the Foreign Agent Registration Act, and it is exactly what its name suggests. Under federal law, if you are acting as an agent of a foreign nation in Washington, you are required to register with our government to let everybody know. So Paul Manafort was locked up on a FARA charge not too long Mm -hmm. ago on the other side of the aisle. I think Tony Podesta was hit Mm -hmm. with one but didn't get any time, and I want to say Gates did as well. Yeah, and and uh, I think somebody else. Yeah, he mentioned somebody else from the Trump campaign uh, who who wound up getting hit with one as well. Right. Oh, uh, Elliot Broidy, mm-hmm. uh, who was a kind of Trump Trump fundraiser. Entirely was, fair, fair charge in all of yeah, those so, cases. So, some of these some of these folks are right, and it raises the question then: Well, what was Hunter Biden doing? Yeah. Other than kind of lobbying, the only possible defense I could imagine consulting for him would be that he was such a bad lobbyist <laughs> that he actually it. never did any lobbying <laughs> and, and that prosecutors looked for any contact that he made between himself and anybody in the government to actually do the things that he told his clients he was going to do and maybe couldn't find it. Because mm, you do find, you do see a lot of emails where he's sending notes to his colleagues saying, hey, get this meeting for this guy, get this meeting for that guy. 
It would be funny if the reason they didn't charge him was because he just shirked his job. Like, I mean, we know that he was on a years-long bender yeah. at this time, that he was supposed to be doing foreign agent work. But literally, he was doing work for foreign governments, and, and not just foreign governments, but like Burisma is not a foreign government, but it's linked to the government. Yeah. And it's, yeah. it is a, you still have to register yeah. as a foreign agent. If you're just serving on the board and giving them advice on how to you know, build a pipeline in, in Ukraine, uh, then you don't actually have to register. But that's not, he, that's not what he's doing. He's not right. like an expert when well, it comes to natural gas. His, his whole thing is influence. Maybe it's just, look, we got his name. He doesn't have to do anything. I mean, that's an interesting point because he obviously was incompetent, but at the same time, there are photos of his clients on the golf course with his dad or- Right, they got there. They clearly got there somehow and right. they paid him and got there, yeah. Yeah, and we have we have uh, evidence of him email-wise setting up meetings, um, the, the Cafe Milano meeting, for instance, which is a super swanky restaurant in Georgetown. There you go. Um, that his dad was at the same place with his clients. So I just have a really hard time believing they didn't find any reason to charge him with a yeah. fair violation. They claim, by the way, that the investor investigation is ongoing. So we'll see if anything else comes of that. I also think Tucker raises an interesting point of tension with uh, the left's, I guess, stance on on gun controls and drug, gun control laws and drug violations and where it puts Hunter Biden right now. For instance, Joe Biden himself has lobbied for people to have more, uh, to have right. more of a stringent approach uh, to if you are, are charged with a drug and a firearm uh, violation, that's actually a huge swath of um, you know the, of, of problems in the country. A huge swath of uh, uh, crime is that combination of, of violating both a, a weapons mm-hmm. law and drug law at the same time. It's a, a combination that Democrats and a lot of Republicans as well um, would say should be a very big problem for someone uh, who who's being charged in court, and he's basically getting a slap on the wrist there. And if we can actually put up uh, A4 on this, uh, we, you, have, you heard from Kodak Black's lawyer, and you heard from a lot of different yes. people, Wesley. You know, people, uh, we mentioned Wesley Snipes on the show yesterday who went to jail for, uh, for not paying taxes. But here's Kodak Black's lawyer saying, look, you commit this crime, you're, you're looking at several years in jail, yep. in, in, in federal prison. Like that's, it is extremely unusual. Now I think that on the left at least, now, maybe among the kind of Democratic Party, there, there's a lot of resistance to seeing Hunter go to jail. But I think on the left, if uh, you locked uh, Hunter Biden up for a gun charge or for foreign agent, uh, you know, not registering as a foreign agent, like, okay, good. You got him? Try, try him. Try yeah. him. Lock him up. Uh, the real left. This, this is not our boy. Not the establishment <laughs> yes. Democrat. Yes, yes, of course. Um, this is actually from The Federalist. In 2021, fewer than 1% of cases filed by U.S. attorneys in federal court resulted in the kind of pretrial diversion offered to Hunter. So fewer than yeah. 1% of cases. This is from Brett Tolman. He says, if Hunter's were a typical case, we would have expected a much more aggressive DOJ response. Mixing illegal drugs and firearms is usually a quick trip to the land of five or seven year mandatory minimum sentences. And again, Hunter Biden is looking at probation, uh, essentially. And, and I think the, the real story is that normally they wouldn't have prosecuted it at all. Uh, they're only going after- Yes, yeah. Uh, they're only going after Kodak because he's like a famous rapper. Right. Uh, it, and if Biden hadn't run for president in 2020, uh, they probably never look at this even at all. And so yeah. then when they finally had to look at it, they're so reluctant to bring charges yeah. that they get this thing, like you said, less than 1%. Just right. abs- absolutely appalling. Uh, 
uh, for anybody who thinks that there's kind of you know equal protection under the laws. Uh, Joe Biden was, who has consistently said, my son has done nothing wrong. Right. Which- Is now at odds with Hunter saying, I'm I did something guilty. wrong. <laughs> yeah, I did something wrong. I, it, it felt like a lie so brazen that it wasn't a lie. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. It's like, we have photos of him doing things wrong all the time. And so for it's you to then book. say, <laughs> it's, he wrote about it in his book, for you to tell us to our faces that he did nothing wrong, we know that you're either completely delusional or you're just saying this because it's because your son. Anyway, he was asked about it at, at an event on, uh, about artificial intelligence yesterday. And here, here's what, what he said real quickly. This is A2. Yes, you I'm very proud of my son. Donald Trump had a slightly different reaction. Yes, he did. If we, can, if we can put up A3, here's uh, the Trump's Truth Social, mostly all caps. The Hunter Joe Biden <laughs> settlement is a massive cover-up and full-scale election interference scam, in quotes, the likes of which has never been seen in our country before. A, quote, traffic ticket, and Joe is all cleaned up and ready to go into the 2024 presidential election. And this, as crooked DOJ state and city <laughs> prosecutors, Marxists and communists all hit me from <laughs> all sides. And angels with bull? Angels with bull. Okay, what? he means angles with bullshit. But he said angels with bull. Oh, all sides and angles with bull. Yeah. Bleep, I see. Make, Make America great. America great again. I would listen to like ASMR, Ryan Grimm <laughs> reading Trump social media posts. I'd I just accepted it. Truth Social's cookies. I wonder what. Uh, I wonder what weird virus I'm going to wind up on my. Good luck with on that. my laptop here. Uh, I mean, th this is bonkers stuff. But he's not wrong that. This is not the kind of proportionate response that the Department of Justice is normally going to give to a defendant. But like Trump also wants two tiers of justice for I'm sure Jared Kushner and I'm sure yes. himself in different cases and people associated with him in different cases. And by the way, there yeah, there are two tiers of justice in the sense that we've talked about this last week. There are charges um, in you know violations of the Espionage Act that Donald Trump is being hit with that you could technically also probably yeah. hit Joe Biden with. Um, whether the case would have been brought without the obstruction is another question. So in that sense, yes, sometimes there are two tiers of justice. The entire Russia collusion narrative was spun up. The FISA warrant, the lack of punishment for people. Um, you know, you basically just have Kevin Kleinsmith getting in trouble. But that's Sure, like yeah. that, we can all agree that's wrong, um, but that doesn't mean that people in positions of power who are hit with partisan justice really want there to be one tier of justice. Right. Everybody wants there to be two tiers. They just disagree on who belongs in which in, tier. In which tier, right. And they all agree that they don't belong in jail. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, that's true. The New York Post, I think, raised a good question. They actually wrote an editorial and they raise a question about the timing. So they say, again, this investigation began back in 2018, and we know the Fed soon had enough evidence to convict on the charges finally brought, perhaps before and surely soon after the 2020 election. Are we supposed to believe they held off so long because they were looking into more consequential crimes, um, only to suddenly decide that they couldn't prove anything else. I think this coming a week after <laughs> the Trump charges um, down from, from Jack Smith, it, it is, you know, we're in the new election cycle. It eerily, Jonathan Turley predicted last August, so August of 2022, that the Hunter Biden charges would end in, quote, controlled demolition. That's uh -huh. exactly what this feels like. And what's so frustrating is that their added statement that the 
investigation remains ongoing because I don't right. really believe that it's ongoing. If it were ongoing, great, Can, you know, continue to prosecute because there's a lot of stuff. Like you said, the Cafe Milano meeting, like check that one out. Yeah. Did he arrange for that? If he did, if you can prove it, Foreign Agent Registration Act violation. Uh, but by saying that the investigation is still ongoing, what it allows them to do is not comment on that, that 1023 that, that yeah. Comer is all... Comer and Grassley are all fired up about, and anything else that involves the case. Well, we can't comment uh, because, uh, you know, ongoing investigation, what can I do? Yeah, and on that note, um, that, that's another interesting point because it's this entire... This entire question about uh, Joe Biden, 2024 election, um, Hunter Biden, the controlled demolition question, like all of this um, is not improving anybody's faith in, <laughs> in our institutions, in our law enforcement, in the FBI. And so now you have uh, the, the like very obvious controlled demolition of, of Hunter Biden and the real question over and over again in Republicans that are sort of thirsty for, you know, this bloodlust for the Biden family. They're not even great at doing this themselves. This is about Joe Biden at the end of the day. And right now, all we're talking about is Hunter Biden. And that's fine, because there's good reason to talk about Hunter Biden. But the Cafe Milano meeting, um, all of these different things, the 10 for the big guy, um, that's about the sitting president of the United States. And all of that is first and foremost and should be uh, first and foremost on our mind. But Hunter is such an easy sideshow because we have the pictures from the laptop and it's much easier for the media to talk about Hunter Biden and for Joe Biden to say he's proud of his son. And that's fine. He's a father um, than actually focusing on what the sitting president of the United States might have been doing. Um, it's a sideshow, I think. Uh, the silver lining from all this, though, is that all of the existential angst of an anxiety of going through this process is gonna help Hunter produce some of the greatest artwork <laughs> that he's made in his career. Maybe. So let's hope. Yeah. And then it And those be... prints will be available for sale for right. the low low price of seventy five thousand dollars each. We should get one for the set. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do, we're gonna do a fundraiser from the audience. We're gonna try to raise seventy five thousand dollars so that we yeah. can get uh, at least one Hunter print. And maybe some access to Ukrainian oligarchs. That's right. Oh, it'll pay for itself many I think times so. over. Well, let's yes, hope. Absolutely. Well, let's move on to new comments made by former President Barack Obama, who is on obviously the podcast circuit right now. Because what else do you do? What's, when what's he slinging? His Netflix, his Netflix documentary. Is I that, don't even that, know. So he's yeah. obviously not doing a good enough job peddling yeah. it. And while why he's isn't he here? <laughs> Right. Why is he here? He can't be far. Um, he's he must be in DC. He's, he's certainly close I'm enough. I'm sure to he's pop doing in. these by Zoom. Yeah. yeah, that's well. That's well. I guess yeah. You're probably right. So on that note, speaking of which, uh, if he is doing it by Zoom, his audio is fantastic. Let's listen to the soundbite of former President Barack Obama on David Axelrod's podcast. The crisis in democracy that you're seeing, not just in the United States but around the world, is not solely an issue of economics. But it is partially the, these huge economic disruptions, the speed with which wealth got concentrated, the speed with which people's lives were disrupted, made people worried and scared. And when people are worried and scared about not just their future, but their kids' futures, then the appeal of right-wing populism, the appeal of sort of a more cynical view of the social order and it's dog eat dog and, and you got to kind of choose up your tribe because it's a zero-sum game all that stuff accelerates and expresses itself in our politics 
Okay, so he just said right-wing populism there, by the way, which is really interesting from the man who, when he was leaving office, his own party rigged a primary. And still, you have mm-hmm. the surge of a populist like Bernie Sanders that is able to nip at the heels of the former Secretary of State, former First Lady, who has basically the entire apparatus of the party behind her. And he's just talking there about the concentration of wealth accelerating a rise of right-wing, as he says, populism, and, and not looking at the other side of the coin in that analysis as, at all, which I actually think is pretty interesting. And what, what's interesting, too, is that, uh, and I cover this moment in my in my last book, is that he sounds a lot like Elizabeth Warren in roughly 2011 talking to Barack Obama. Right. So he, uh, Occupy Wall Street is happening uh, at that Occupy point. Wall Street, he, he brought her in to set up the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and then she left to go, after it was set up, to go run for Senate in Massachusetts. And so Obama and Warren had kind of an exit interview, first time really that she gets some actual time with Obama. And she says basically this to him, that <clears throat> wealth the wealth concentration, wealth got concentrated. <laughs> the, con- the concentration of wealth that he's allowing and engineering to happen uh, is going to produce an inequality that is that is itself then going to express itself in our politics in the mm-hmm. form of right-wing populism. That's the kind of thing she was saying. And she zeroed in on housing because this is at the height of the uh, eviction crisis, the foreclosure crisis. And that that has been the thing that has ripped the fabric of our society you know, the, the most completely is the inability of uh, people to kind of live that American dream. The social contract is always involved being able to own a home and grow your wealth through that home. And then the American people then, you know, look the other way on all of the other terrible things that are happening because that's the thing that is kind of the, the promise in return. You're going to be able to retire on that. You can pass it down to your kids, whatever. Now you can't even aff- afford rent. Uh, ten, 10 years on from, from her warning, after that meeting, and she, and she said, you've got to do something policy-wise about, about where this is headed. And he's like, love to hear your ideas, we're out of time. Um, here, email me, yeah. and, uh, and, we'll, and we'll talk. You know, and uh, you know, my, uh, my secretary will give you my personal email. As she, as she leaves, she tells the secretary uh, what he said. She's like, yeah, just, just email me. I'll make sure he gets it. Mm-hmm. And they basically never talked about that ever again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'm, so, but it's, so, I'm, so it's funny to hear <laughs> him say it now. Uh, but I'm curious for your take on this, because I think, feel like you somewhat disagree with, with what he's saying here. Uh, there are a lot of Democrats who also disagree and feel like he is downplaying the role of kind of racism and hostility to uh, immigrants and, all, and, and migrants. Uh, that fueled right-wing populism around this time, and I, I get I get beat up every time I point to, uh, at, you know, uh, economic cataclysms as as producing some of these uh, anxieties that, as he says, express themselves in our politics. So, curious where you come down on that. I think it's definitely the combination. Um, I, I think you know you you would still have it without one. You would still have the other, and you would still have I think without. Uh, Without, without, the, without like, the economic crisis, you'd still have right-wing populism. And without the cultural changes, you would still have populism because uh, both are pretty severe. I see. Because the uh, rapid concentration of wealth happened very quickly and especially hit certain areas in the Rust Belt, for instance. Um, and Obama actually was reacting to that in 2000. I actually thought in this clip he was going to go into clinging to guns and religion, mm-hmm. um, one of the most famous quotes that he had. It's basically the same thing. 
almost he's, he's, he's exactly saying, yeah, the same he's, he's thing. He's saying that he's on the same theme. Yeah, almost yeah. exactly the same thing. And interestingly enough, he was the other side of that coin back in 2008 when he was sort of casting aspersions at right-wing populism. He was doing this populism that was uh, left-wing, but really more palatable to everybody, kind of across the board, like a very sort of centrist, hope and change type mm-hmm. populism, talking about ending the, like, uh, ending the war, things that everyone was in agreement with at the time. Um, and then on the other side of this, he, you can just look at the, the mergers that were allowed to happen under his mm-hmm. watch that, as Stoller, Matt Stoller, I think, really appropriately points out, this was not just an economic uh, disruption, to borrow pre- the president's word. Uh, this was also a cultural disruption. So as you have wealth concentrating via these mergers, you also have power over speech concentrating, and you create ideological monopolies. So both are happening at the same time. You know, when you create economic concentration, you're also, when you create wealth concentration or you allow it to happen just sort of passively, as he says, it just it just happened. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have had anything to do with that. Um, when you do that, you're also concentrating power. And I think, you know, when I look at the culture war, for instance, those dear colleague letters on Title IX um, that created basically kangaroo courts on college campuses that were these, I mean, those were sparks of the culture war flame. That's where you end up uh, hurtling into Gamergate. That's where you end up hurtling into the Dear Colleague letters on Title IX that said gender identity would be conflated legally with biological sex. And that was just via a letter from the Department of Education under Barack Obama. That was his policy. Camille Paglia, at the time, said she was like, that's when I knew that Hillary Clinton was losing the election, when I saw that the Obama administration did that, um, because it's just so divisive. There was his immigration policy where he basically just waved a magic wand and used executive powers in a way that a lot of people on the left encouraged him to. That, uh, I mean, I would argue, you probably disagree with this, created de facto open borders. The Beer Summit, which was, I think, a, a way that handled the the uh, Skip Gates, the Henry Louis mm-hmm. Gates thing, an incredibly divisive way. Um, I think he really fanned the flames on a cultural level. Why, why is level. that divisive, though? It's like a summit bringing people together over beer. He didn't just have talking. to weigh in on it. I mean, I think oh, like that's the, why the it was. the entire weighing in on. Right. Um, it, but it wasn't an easy position for him to be in. I, I like, actually was just talking about this yesterday. He was in one of the, le- the, the least enviable positions as the first black president. Um, and there was never going to be an easy way to sort of weigh in on those issues. Um, I think a lot of what he did was counterproductive. But, um, you know, I, I don't begrudge him. I, don't, I think that was a pretty difficult position to be in. But um, on a lot of different levels, he fanned the flames of both, I think, wealth concentration and that sort of ideological monopolization that uh, came to dominate elite circles by the end of his presidency. And, and you have both Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump as a reaction to both of those things. Um, you know, Bernie Sanders did not go on Broad City, <laughs> unlike, no. unlike Hillary. But I, th- th- that would be my takeaway. And I, I don't want to defend Barack Obama, but on the, on the question of kind of Black Lives Matter and, and racial justice and the way that he interacted with, with that rising energy, I feel like he gets a bump, you're giving him a bum rap there in the sense that for the first like four or five years mm-hmm. of his administration, and, and I was critical of him at the time for not saying enough, right. for being somebody who, and, and as he's talked about since, because he was the first black president, he felt like he couldn't say things yeah. that perhaps even Joe Biden uh, would have said. Yeah. And then some things just get to a point where you're just being irresponsible if you don't weigh in on it. Or, or 
you get asked about it and you answer the question. Like this, you know, there it, it was this famous case, if people want to go back and look it up, where Henry Louis Gates, this Harvard professor, is in Cambridge. Uh, he's coming back from a trip. He's got his luggage on his porch and he had locked himself out. Yeah. And the Cambridge police uh, arrest him, which two people like Barack Obama who have been followed through, uh, you know, a Macy's for no sure. doing nothing different than white people walking through a Macy's. They, they hear that and they're like, enough of this. Like, let, let's let's say something about this. Maybe we maybe we're at a place where we can actually talk about this and, and move beyond it. And a lot of people on the left like ridiculed the whole idea of a beer summit, like uh, that it didn't even deserve that level of like, why are you coddling this kind of attitude rather than just denouncing it? Right. Um, but yet, and it shows how intractable this stuff is that that if it's if it's the case that from the right that was viewed as like, how dare you? Like, why are you instigating? Uh, why just just leave just leave well enough alone? No, I mean, I think, so we definitely don't need to relitigate the beer summit, so I'll probably just <laughs> That was what, like 2009. I remember. Uh, it was Blue Moon. The cop got a Blue Moon. The blue moon. Um, I, I respected that, because it's like, that's like uh, oftentimes a politician who's like trying to be working class, but really wants a Blue Moon, yeah. isn't going to do, it, do put, it, not going to put fruit in their Give beer. Me yingling. But yeah. if you're confident <laughs> about your... Your social status and your working class status, and give me the blue moons. Yeah, give me the moon. it's, it's paid for by the White House. I'm getting the blue moon. Yeah, 100%. You have the, you have the Bud Light. Right. Which <laughs> Enjoy. You can't have the Bud Light anymore, though. I thought I, I don't like indulging. Um, I, I don't think that there was. I think w what we learned, I think, was that basically there was no racial animus in that situation, as entirely understandable, as you said, for people who have been followed through Macy's, um, you know, Henry Louis Gates or, or Barack Obama, as entirely understandable as that is. I think having the, the uh, commander in chief indulge charges of, of racism for a cop who was just doing his job as as representative as that actually is, that you have you know sensitivities on both sides from people that were defending the police and people who were defending um, Skip Gates. I completely get it, um, but I think elevating that to uh, the, the level of the White House was a telling mistake that Obama made early in his presidency. And again, I don't envy him at all. That was an incredibly difficult position to be in. But when I look back on that, I think um, there was there was sort of indulging um, the language that has come to be really divisive. Not an easy thing for him to do, though. It just, yeah, I don't know. It just doesn't seem fair to say you just can't talk about this. It, that it's like, you know. I, I think the way he talked about it on the campaign in 2008 was really unifying. And then I think something shifted after he was in office, and he was he was being forced to respond um, to cultural things that were happening. The, the people that you know, he wasn't in charge of in the media, for instance, who spread abject lies about what happened in Ferguson for a really long time. He was then forced to grapple with that in a way that was unfair to him. Um, but I think he made some tactical errors that that did inflame tensions. Right. It's also the case that the country is often willing to speak about kind of. Uh, racial harmony in general terms, but then when it gets to specifics, everyone's like, eh, yeah. not so sure about in this case. But right. generally speaking, I was listening to that Axelrod interview, and one thing that, that struck me about it was they, they start the conversation going back over his 2004 convention speech mm. with, with, with the famous lines, you know, uh, there's, there's no liberal or American, conservative America, there are no red states and blue states, there's the United States, we all worship, blah, blah, blah. Um, Today, on the left, you would get canceled for yes. for saying that, to say that there's no white American, no black American, no brown American, no, like, 
that that that, that would be erasing identities. Yeah. Uh, and, and it reminded me of how close to the 90s Obama's kind of rise was. Like Obama's a very is a creature of the 90s, which very much did have that attitude. Sort of the this bridge. Is this is 2004 that he's given his speech. Mm. Um, but you you wouldn't have a presidential candidate talk that way on the Democratic side anymore. Now that would be much more kind of Republican rhetoric. Right. Cynically kind of weaponizing that Martin Luther King, yes. famous Martin Luther King line. Yes. Yeah. Well, Martin Luther King has some lines that would get him canceled from no. the left as well. And probably, well, yeah. probably also had some lines that got him killed. Yes. Yeah. yes. But anyway. Uh, Supreme Court, or do we have Trump next? We've got Trump next, um, because we have to keep talking about Trump. Yes. No, right? <laughs> Otherwise, we, uh, as people in the media, we shrivel up and That's die right. if we don't get our Trump fix. Uh, speaking of which, Donald Trump has a court date. August. August. Uh, Judge Eileen Cannon, I'm reading from the Washington Examiner right now. We can put that element up on the screen. Set the date, the first court date for the former president's classified documents trial a little over a week before the first GOP primary debate. It's in the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Florida. That is going to begin on August 14th, 2023, per a court filing that hit on Tuesday. She said in the filing that the deadline for both parties to submit pretrial motions and motions um, in Lamine, am I saying my Latin correctly? Mm -hmm. um, that means in the beginning no is clue. July 24th, 2023. Now, CBS News makes a really good point and says, quote, that date is likely to change as Trump's legal team files requests with the court that could result in the trial's delay. So that July 24th um, pretrial motion deadline is really important because uh, they are expected to file before that. Uh, they're expected to file a motion before that, which would change the date from that week before the first debate. So the Trial date is August 14th. This is actually, it sounds counterintuitive, but this is, a, if, you're, if you're Donald Trump, this is a blessing. Going into the first debate, this is such a gift. You're like, I'm going to be in court a week before the first debate? Bring it on. That puts me front and center in the conversation. Nobody else will be able to get any oxygen. And I am going to be, once again, the avatar of normal Americans, as he says. They're not coming after me. I'm just, they're coming after you. I'm just in the way. What mm -hmm. gives him a better sort of platform to make that message than coming out of court and into the debate? But it actually looks like uh, that debate <laughs> that, that date before the debate probably won't happen because they'll probably be submitting pretrial motions. Right. And also the process for these cases is, first of all, wildly unconstitutional, but has never been tested at the Supreme Court because it is so slanted against defendants that defendants always take plea deals in these situations. But basically, because there are classified documents involved, the jury is restricted on what it's able to see, even though the jury is, has to then make its decision based on what it's not able to see. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the process to allow attorneys to, to view the documents, to allow the judge to see the documents, uh, to then write their briefs from secure areas, ends, ends up adding exponential complications to this process, which is another reason uh, that this could uh, you know, get punted uh, well into the future, particularly since uh, this judge, uh, Judge Cannon, doesn't have much experience doing trials, period. I think like five days or something of criminal like trials. A Trump appointee, and, by the way. Right. A Trump appointee at the very end of his term. Uh, so, so therefore has very little experience with, with uh, criminal trials and none with these kinds of trials. 
So Donald Trump has been, the Fox News has been airing in two parts, Donald Trump's interview with Brett Baer. He sat down with Brett Baer for a pretty long interview and some new clips came out last night. Hard to pick from the best. It really is because one, we're gonna play in a minute, is almost unbelievable. Um, but oh, the de death penalty for the for drug dealers? That's a fun one. Right, yeah. yeah, he weighs in on Alice Marie Johnson and Brett Baer pushes him a little bit. But let's start with uh, Donald Trump being pushed on the nickname DeSanctimonious. We can roll that. Because he has better PR than other governors, but other governors did a better job than Ron DeSanctimonious. So look. Why do you use that name? Because um, I got him elected. And I thought it was very disloyal when he said, yes, I'd run. I got him past two races. I got him past the primary because he was losing by 30 points or more. So he it's was a loyalty question? Yeah, it's a loyal. I'm a big loyalist. You know, some people say, some people right here in this room have told me, sir, don't worry about loyalty. Loyalty doesn't mean anything in politics. I said to me, it does. I got the guy elected. He came to see me. Let's say weeping because he was dead. He was getting out of the race. He was looking for jobs already, probably at law firms or wherever he's going to look. He was totally dead. He ran a horrible campaign. He was running against Adam Putnam, the uh, agriculture commissioner, who was running for that position for eight years. Yeah. Putnam had $38 million back. Ron had nothing, zero. Putnam was at 40%. Ron was at 3%. It was like a wipeout. The election was going to be very soon. I said, you're dead. If George Washington endorsed you, you're not going to win. He said, sir, if you endorse me, I think I could win. And he fought for me along with Jim Jordan and hundreds of other people, in all fairness. He was fine, but he fought. But I would see him every once in a while fighting on the impeachment hooks. So I didn't know Adam Putnam. So I said, let's give it a shot. I endorsed him, and it was like a bomb went off. As soon as I endorsed him, he won the primary. It was over. He won by a landslide. But then I had him to get him past Gillum, who was a rock star. He was going to be the next president of the United States. He was the biggest guy in the party. Him and female version, Stacey Abrams, right? These are the two hottest politicians in the Democrat Party. And Ron said, there's no way I can beat him. I said, you're going to beat him. I did three rallies. God bless you. Thank you so much. So we had big, massive rallies for Ron, three of them. I said, you're going to win. He ended up winning. He ended up winning. By so it makes you mad. And makes then, you mad. then three years later, they say to him, then I, I didn't deal with I didn't know him that well. Three years later, but I got him elected. But I did that with other people, too. But, you know, just out of respect. So I said, three years later, they asked him, are you going to run against the president? He said, I have no comment. I said, no comment. No comment means he's going to run. I said, this guy's going to run. So Donald Trump is actually 100% accurate in saying that his endorsement was crucial to Ron DeSantis. Might and be off on the numbers slightly, but... Maybe slightly, but Ron DeSantis he, knows that because he right. ran ads at the time mm -hmm. emphasizing over and over again how close he was and how MAGA he was. Basically, there's that famous ad of him with his kids in his living room. Um, where, isn't the kid yeah, building yeah, a wall he, with the blocks? The kid's building a wall. It's like, yeah, it's, it's very clearly uh, Ron DeSantis endorsing the argument that Donald Trump just made about the Trump endorsement being absolutely critical. The loyalty part is really interesting um, because I would say Trump doesn't hold up his end of the bargain on the loyalty question and people in Republican politics learned that lesson the hard way that when Donald Trump says loyalty is really important to him, he does think it's important to him. I think very clearly Donald Trump thinks loyalty is important to him, but uh, it seems like a one-way street. When you look back on, on his history with certain advisors, what did you make of that clip? One quick ironic interlude here, which is that the DeSantis and Gillum election, one of the great hinge points in American politics, because this came down to just 30,000 votes, like an extremely close race. The only reason that DeSantis ends up winning this election is because of FBI election interference. There, there's, your, there's, your, there's your irony. And where, where is Trump in denouncing this? The FBI came in and leaked that there's uh, an investigation into Tallahassee, uh, but that it was focusing on Gillum because Gillum got some Hamilton tickets 
<laughs> through his brother, and that Gillum said he thought his brother had reimbursed the person that he got the Hamilton tickets from, but apparently his brother did not, or cousin or whoever, did not reimburse. So they went to Hamilton and they didn't pay for their tickets. And this became a gigantic scandal in like a week or two before the election. And you can, and you can see his momentum kind of dampen. And you can imagine that the tiny margin, 0.4% that DeSantis won by, was made up entirely by the FBI creeping in and flipping that election uh, to DeSantis. <laughs> now, later, uh, Gillum has had a lot of personal problems. Yeah. Uh, we, wish, we wish him well in those. You can Google those. We don't, <laughs> we don't need go, to get into them. We don't need to get into all that. But Trump is right that he was next president of the United States level, level rock star, and that if not for that uh, last-minute FBI election interference, he, he probably wins. Uh, but uh, broadly speaking, uh, yeah, Trump is, is just... He's just shocked that somebody would uh, challenge him. How dare he? Right. Well, and it's it's not even so much a lack of loyalty as it is in politics. People obviously have different reasons for. I mean, running against someone, I guess, is a breach of loyalty. But people believe in their own careers and their own missions, and that's obviously baked into politics. And Trump is sort of rejecting that when it comes to him. Interesting enough. Um, now, this next clip, we teased it. You're going to enjoy it. <laughs> I, it's wild. It's wild. So this is. So just to set this up, because we, we, the whole exchange with, between Bear and Trump on the question of capital punishment for drug dealers is, is worth watching. It's way too long to play the entire thing. To set, so to set it up, Bear is, they're, they're, they're into it a little bit. Uh, Trump earlier had been talking about uh, Alice Johnson, who he loves to bring up uh, yeah. because, you know, helping uh, get, get her freed. She was facing a 50-year sentence for drug dealing. Kim Kardashian, Jared Kushner, Ivanka Trump all team up, get the, the First Step Act First Step passed. Act. And yeah. so it's this weird exchange between Barron Trump where Bear is pointing out to him that he's getting criticized from the right for being too soft on criminal justice because of the First Step Act, while meanwhile he's sitting there calling for the people that he freed to be executed. Yeah. And so let's see how he sorts this out in his mind. So even Alice Johnson and that ad? She can't do it, okay? By the way, if that was there, no, she wouldn't be killed. It would start as of now, so you wouldn't go to no, the I past. No, I know, but your policy. No, no, no. no, starting now, yeah. But she wouldn't have done it if it was death penalty. In other words, if it was death penalty, she wouldn't have been on that phone call. She wouldn't have been a dealer. Now, she wasn't much of a dealer, because she was sort of like, I mean, honestly, she got treated terribly. She was treated. She was treated sort of like I get treated. But, Brett, she was treated very unfairly. But she got 48 years, and that was bad. Now, today, if I did what I say that you have to do, and again, I'm not sure the country's ready for it. You know, China was hugely, uh, 150 years ago, China was taken over by much lesser countries because they were all drugged out on the opium and all the problems. It's a communist regime. They, well, they dropped they, the hammer. They were all drugged out, and they were totally, they were a disaster. They were taken over by other smaller countries, large sections of China. And then things happened, and they had strong leadership, and they put in the death penalty, and they've become, they've been able to build. My, but if you, point if is, you is speak that... to President Xi, he will tell you, without the death penalty, we would have a non-functioning country. So the, the <laughs> earlier part is wild, where He's talking about capital punishment for the drug dealers, and Brett Bear's like, even Alice Johnson? He's like, hmm. And he starts to think, like, huh. And then he's like, well, she wouldn't because she'd be so scared of me that she wouldn't deal the drugs in the first place. And then, as you see, he transitions into 
the most praise that anyone has given Chairman Mao from either party uh, it, since the founding of the Chinese Communist Party, I would suspect. Say what you will about Mao, he had control. <laughs> he did He did have control. <laughs> That's the argument, basically. Yeah, and it's funny because she, she uses this phrase, uh, change is not seen in 100 years, change is not seen in 100, 150 years. And what, what he is saying there, what, what she is pointing to the exact same thing. Yes. That, that, that China was getting beaten down by the, by the world stage, uh, pieces getting taken by Japan and this, that. And then- Everyone's high. Everyone's high because the, the because the British forced opium uh, onto the population, and when the Chinese resisted it, the British went to war, mm -hmm. the opium war, to to force them to continue to buy opium to fund the kind of British imperialism, British colonialism, and so then Mao takes over, and they become they you know they they return to the place they're and they're on their way to returning to the place that they feel like they've always belonged in this, on the stage. So to hear Trump kind of celebrating that all the way through uh, and linking it to the death penalty for, for drug use, just kind of wild. And so I'm curious on the Republican side, we're, it's what, eight years into Trump on the national, sta national political stage, so we're used to this sort of stuff, but this is whiplash of kind of an even greater degree. Does, or does, does, it not, does it not matter? Like, how, how does a... Does it matter that he's, on the one hand, defending the First Step Act, and on the other hand, saying that maybe if the country's ready for it, but they're probably not ready for it, but if they are, maybe we should execute drug dealers? I think it matters only on the margins. So I think there's a chance that seeing Donald Trump look so unfamiliar with his own legislation <laughs> and touting Alice Johnson's story and Brett Baer, who I think conducted a great interview, pushing back and saying she was running a cocaine ring, essentially, and that doesn't reflect on, on my stance about her, her sentence, but that's what Donald Trump is being confronted with. Yeah. Right, and, and that might not have been what Jared was telling him, but or yeah. what Kim Kardashian was telling him, but right. by his own sort of standards of death penalty or not, uh, it just made him look like he, uh, like, like he lacked leadership skills because he didn't he wasn't even familiar with his own laws and how they would be applied and then got you know really and, and that's when people do interviews with Donald Trump that aren't policy focused. It's such a disservice to the public because you can really learn so much about Donald Trump when you ask him specific questions about policies. Uh, and that's what Brett Baird does in this interview. It, like I think really gets to the bottom of the way Trump sees drug policy, for instance. And that's very useful. The DeSantis team definitely thinks that the First Step Act is a vulnerability for Donald Trump. Now, I believe DeSantis actually voted for the First Step Act. He was still in Congress. Mm -hmm. But because Donald Trump made a big deal of it and did, you know, had, had Kim Kardashian there and has touted it for a long time and was really the person who, uh, his administration, you know, shepherded this through Congress, um, because crime has become a really huge hot topic for Republican voters, they believe this is a vulnerability for Donald Trump, that if they can get him to talk about the First Step Act, this is uh, Pedro Gonzalez um, talking about, uh, yeah, yeah, this is someone and who- who is he? He's, he's with the Claremont Institute, I believe. Um, and he says, quote, this is someone, Trump, who has no idea how to govern and cannot accept the fact that he made mistakes. And if Trump cannot admit fault on something like the First Step Act, he is completely incapable of leading. And so Trump critics, 
see the First Step Act in particular as a vulnerability, I, w- I would say expect it to come up more often during the primaries. Right. And because it freed what a thousand, it, it barely freed anybody. Like what, the frustration among criminal justice reformers was that all of the energy that went into passing this act could have just been spent on commuting sentences of individual people one by one because it freed so many people. But it sounds like the, uh, somebody who got freed uh, was in the Latin Kings or something and went on and committed a crime, uh, killed somebody in a bar. But he had he had been in for. Drugs, because like if you free if you free several thousand people yeah. um, from prison, statistically, statistically, like some out of thousands of people, some people are going to commit crimes in the future, whether they were in prison before or not. Yeah, uh, if they were in prison, they're probably slightly more likely to commit crimes, uh, not necessarily because they are criminals, but because they have just spent years in in an institution surrounded by criminals, uh, and so. Yeah, so I guess you're going to see like Willie Horton style stuff of like, look, individual crime happened. The, the criminal was in jail, wouldn't have happened if he was still in jail. Therefore, Trump is responsible for this. Like that, that'll kind of be the argument. Yeah, so here's uh, Pedro. He's, he's with the Charlemagne Institute and Chronicles Magazine, not uh, Claremont. But he said he brings up this old Tucker Carlson report in 2019 of the 2,200 roughly inmates, 2,243 inmates released under first step, only 960 were incarcerated for drug-related offenses. On the other hand, 496 were imprisoned for weapons and explosive-related crimes, 239 for sex offenses, 178 for fraud, bribery, and extortion, 118 for burglary, larceny, uh, larceny, and 106 for robbery, according to the data. Another 59 were imprisoned over homicide, aggravated assault, 46 for immigration-related offenses, nine for counterfeiting, embezzlement, and two for national security reasons. So that is, again, like expect to hear more of that for sure because uh, I think Trump opponents see that in particular as crime has risen in some cities unevenly, of course, but as that has happened, um, and as you have had, you know, the sort of left-wing prosecutors respond to it in a way that you see maybe a cause and effect in places like San Francisco and the pivot from London Breed, that's where uh, folks that are uh, running against Donald Trump, I think, see a real soft spot. And he thinks he can harden that up by saying, well, kill him. I'm just going to kill them all. Yeah. 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 Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention at the very top of the show, in, in Fairfax, they went after the uh, reformist prosecutor. Uh, mm-hmm. And lost. Mm-hmm. So an- another another case of the media kind of blaming uh, ref- criminal justice reformer prosecutors for you know uh, people being sca- an- anxious about crime, and then voters going to the polls and reelecting those very same people yeah, in, in blue areas. It's, yeah, exactly like in blue areas. It's not always the golden ticket that I think people on the right uh, believe it to be, depending on the location and depending on the messaging, obviously. Speaking of crime, let's move on to the news about uh, Andrew. Oh, I'm sorry. Supreme Court. Supreme also, Court. We're going to get to a, crime and Andrew Tate in just spree. a moment, but yeah. the Supreme Court, as Ryan said, on a crime spree. Um, from a conservative perspective, this is why it, Ryan says crime spree. Uh, there are a lot of decisions that could be coming out of the Supreme Court basically in the next week 
on student loan debt, on the Chevron doctrine, which is something you'll hear tossed about in Beltway Circles or Ivory Towers, but is hugely consequential for the executive branch, um, and on affirmative action. So as Supreme Court decisions from this last term are announced in the coming days, um, this is a hugely consequential moment for people, obviously, who have outstanding student loan debt. Um, it will be a big deal for the executive branch and probably a very big deal for people in college admissions offices and students around the country. So let's start with student loan debt. We can put up the tear sheet C1. This is from CBS News. Um, the finances of about 40 million Americans with college loans are hanging in the balance as borrowers await the Supreme Court's ruling on the legality of President Biden's plan to forgive up to $20,000 in student loan debt. Um, borrowers could face a double whammy this summer if the Supreme Court rules against the debt forgiveness plan as the court's decision is likely to land just before the pause on debt repayment lifts in September. The court is scheduled to release its next decisions on Thursday morning. In the worst case scenario, CBS continues, borrowers will face restarting their loan payments in September without any debt release. This is being challenged um, on a, in a couple of different ways. And you'll remember back when oral arguments happened in the winter, the Supreme Court was very hostile to what the Biden administration did. Um, as, as far as you can read the tea leaves from the questionings uh, in the, the hearing, it was pretty unfavorable. It seemed to be yeah. pretty unfavorable to the Biden administration. But uh, they're being challenged on basically this question of you're using an emergency declaration to pass the student debt forgiveness and to, to sort of wave the wand and say it was it was going away. Uh, and you have states, Arkansas, Iowa, Kansas, Missouri, Nebraska, and South Carolina. You have a lawsuit from the Job Creators Network Foundation, their conservative group. Um, they're saying basically this was illegal. This was extra constitutional. Um, and those Republican states were saying it was a financial setback for them um, because you're gonna get, quote, a reduction in business, this is from CNBC, among the companies that service federal student loan debts in their states. So that would be, for instance, the Missouri Higher Education Loan Authority. Um, couldn't meet its financial obligations to the state, is the argument, because of that decreased revenue. Um, and there's also a question of standing that right. could hurt. Which is related to that. Right, yeah. yes. So th this is, uh, there's a lot on the line, basically. And uh, the Supreme Court decision is imminent. And what this really shows is how BS all of the kind of legal arguments are on, bo on both sides. Because to me, just objectively speaking, if you step back and look at the, the HEROES Act that this was written under, this was a kind of post-9-11 law that said in the event of a national emergency, uh, the Department of Education has the ability uh, to pause, suspend, or cancel uh, student debts. And so we had a national emergency. The COVID. It was declared as a national emergency. And as a result, as a policy response, the Department of Education under Trump uh, paused the student debt. And then the Department of Education under, under Biden determined that the smartest policy would be to cancel a certain amount of it using the authority that was created in, in 2001 or after the 2001 attacks. And to, to invalidate that to me says that you're requiring then Congress you're basically telling Congress that they're not allowed to anticipate future events and put laws in place to allow a government to react to those events. If you can't say, in the event of an emergency, you have this authority, because you have to come back 20 years later and say, no, 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 when we said emergency, we actually meant all emergencies, mm -hmm. like not just this emergency, but other declared emergency, even though the law says 
you know, declared emergencies. Like it's it's very clear. But I don't think it matters. The Supreme the Supreme Court, if they don't want to allow it, they're just going to uh, not go ahead and allow it. To your point on on standing, uh, there's been this fun whack-a-mole between uh, people who are trying to strike down the law or the executive action for political purposes because they don't like it and the problem that they need to find somebody who's harmed by it. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do you find somebody who's harmed by other people just not having to pay their debts? And so at first they found somebody who, because they got their debt waived, uh, now they owed some taxes. Yeah, and they're like, "Oh, I hate taxes, so I'm <laughs> suing, so I don't, so I can pay the debts instead of the taxes." Right. And the Biden administration quickly said, "Nope, that's moot because now it's optional. Yeah, you don't have to take this free money yeah. that we're giving you. Therefore, you have no tax obligations." They're like, ah, dang. Yeah. And then they did, they, I forget there was another one, and then they and then they wound up with this one, where they went to this Missouri company, which has not paid its quote unquote obligations to the state of Missouri for 15 years. Mm-hmm. And so the state of Missouri is saying, well, now it's not gonna be able to pay its obligations yes. to the state, to us. Yeah. It's like, but they haven't paid for 15 years and you haven't cared. Right. And the company itself, there's a great story if you can put up the second uh, tear sheet here. Uh, employees at this company are all furious that they've been roped into this. Mohila itself uh, has is not participating at all. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett yes. said during the, the trial, uh, or said during the oral arguments, if Mohila was here, they would have standing. Right. Mohila is very conspicuously not here. Yeah. Like they are, they are not interested in this. One, of, one of the employees, probably in their Slack or whatever, said, "Are we the bad guys? <laughs> like, wh- like how on earth are we being used?" And so, the, basically, Missouri's argument, this like triple bank shot, is that Mohila would have more business if you keep more people burdened with debt. And if Mohila has more business, then there's a better chance that Mohila then kicks money over to Missouri. Yeah. Even though Mohila has not kicked money to Missouri for 15 years. Yeah. So it's all completely fake and just political. So what's actually really interesting about that is it's not entirely dissimilar from what's on the table with Chevron. And the Chevron doctrine yeah. is a yeah, explain huge- Explain that. So what's, Chevron, what's Chevron? This is a huge, first of all, it was, it, it was a huge boon to the left. Like this was a, a really big gift to, and I don't mean that in a sort of pejorative right. sense. Like this basically created the administrative state. This basically allows the administrative state to use executive powers uh, in, a, in a very broad scope to do some really everyday governing at, for instance, the EPA. Um, or the Department of Education, because this I'm reading from Cornell Law School, which has a lot of really helpful uh, legal information, but just so we have a precise definition from them. In Chevron, the Supreme Court set forth a legal test as to when the court should defer to the agency's answer or interpretation, holding that such judicial deference is appropriate where the agency's answer was not unreasonable, and here's the key part, so long as Congress had not spoken directly to the precise issue at question. This is where the HEROES Act is actually pretty interesting as well from the student debt question. You see the executive branch using uh, that deference, that that question Mm -hmm. of deference to the Secretary of Education that was granted in the HEROES Act. And you see people on the right saying, well, this is clearly extra constitutional. This was never a constitutional power that should have been delegated to the Education Secretary, and this is an inappropriate use of it anyway. But because we have 
For instance, we, we've talked about this a lot. The vaccine mandate requirement that Joe Biden implemented was he used an obscure provision from the OSHA mm -hmm. legislation, the legislation that Richard Nixon passed that essentially created OSHA. Um, you can sort of pull out from these things and stretch them to meet different authorities uh, from the executive. And on the left, uh, mint the coin, for instance. Like there's all of this sort of creative um, ways that you can get from point A to B with executive power and actually do things in the absence of Congress's ability to do anything anymore because of tribalism and partisanship that has a deadlock, maybe a Madisonian deadlock, but a deadlock nonetheless. And so that's why Chevron is, uh, I, mean, I would say, uh, in terms of conservative efforts to like target the administrative state, that is like number one. Mm -hmm. uh, Chevron is, th this is like a, a gift. Like you're putting Chevron on a silver platter for the Supreme Court or the, the uh, with the divide that's at it, that it has right now, uh, the, the division between conservative and liberal justices. Um, this is a really big deal. It's a very big deal for agencies that have been doing sort of business as usual for a long time, mm -hmm. taking these authorities um, where Congress to uh, borrow the phrase from Cornell, had not spoken directly to the precise issue at question. Um, they've been taking that authority upon themselves. It could be tied up in, in tons of legal battles. The everyday functioning of these agencies is on the table um, in a way that, you know, I think we've dramatically expanded the scope of regulatory power of the administrative state in ways that we're, why we're talking about gas stove bans, why we're talking about, uh, you know, the way Title IX functions in very specific ways in very specific schools has been harmful. Um, but the way this is on the table is, is vast. Do you think um, they're going to do it? Yes. Think My guess would be yes. They're going for it? But there's a question as to whether they go all the way or they just sort of uh, nibble around the edges of Chevron as we know it. Whether they want war or they want guerrilla war against the state. <laughs> yeah. I think they want war against the state, but I think that they're not sure if they have the troops for it. Yeah, I mean, it's it, this would be a big change to the everyday function of Washington, yeah. D.C. I mean, these administration, these administrative agencies have, have exploded really because of Chevron deference. And it would hasten, I think, the constitutional conflict with the court. I, like you, yeah, like the, the court is already teetering uh, on its on the authority that it that it kind of spent uh, on Ro, on overturning Roe v. Wade. Yes. And so if they then say, oh, and also by the way, the EPA is not allowed to function. Right. You're gonna take de Democrats who are just normie rank and file folks. We're like, you know what? Forget the Supreme Court. Ignore it. We're done with the Supreme Court. And I'm like reading. They, what, what, what's the line? They, he's he's made that Andrew Jackson said he made his ruling. Now let him enforce it. Let him enforce it. It, well, I'm reading here from a Federalist Society blog um, where they, they call Chevron, quote, the most notorious decision in administrative law. And this is, you know, remember, the Federalist Society had a lot of say um, in the judges that in are the court, in the Supreme the Court. Of the court. And yeah. I don't mean that in a Sheldon Whitehouse sense where it's like, you know, he's doing the Charlie Kelly mm -hmm. um, on the whiteboard, like this is all a grand conspiracy of federal society money going in the Supreme Court. It's this ideological milieu um, that you know the, the Federal Society, I think, has the right stance on Chevron, but um, I imagine if we're trying to guess where the Supreme Court's gonna land on Chevron, I imagine it's, it's going to go in one very particular direction, and that ideological milieu is basically at a consensus on affirmative action, um, and that's on yeah. the table as well. So some really yeah, consequential- I think they'll win that one. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely, because uh, Sandra Day O'Connor herself uh, in 
a pretty important decision on this question said it is a temporary, it's meant as a temporary measure um, to achieve, you know, to get from A to B. And uh, so when you have that as precedent, um, yeah, I think it's very vulnerable. And again, they're coming from an ideological milieu where there's basically a consensus on Chevron, Chevron and affirmative action. And there's an interesting argument made on the left, I think it's by Richard Kallenberg, people can search that up, that's, that argues that uh, if affirmative action is overturned, because it is still a value held by so many institutions and universities, uh, the value of diversity, that they, will, that they will be forced to rely on class diversity in order to achieve identity diversity. Yeah. Uh, because we are so far away from an equitable society that it is the case uh, that uh, black students are much more likely yes. to be poor and working class yes. than white students. And so if you then use a class lens, which is constitutional and legal, yes. in order to increase the number of working class and poor people that you have in your institution, you will also, as a, a function of that, increase the number of, of black students that you have as well. It's a more just um, mechanism to get to the point anyway, from my perspective. But a lot of these institutions don't want poor and working class sure uh, people. No. So the, the, it, it'll be the values that they have intention, and we'll see how they sort that out. Yeah, they meet their quotas through, for instance, boarding schools. Uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to right. take you know people from uh, the sporting school, but we're going to make it diverse. Ma Matthew, <laughs> Matthew Iglesias jokes that he like he went to Harvard uh, and one or both of his parents are like Cuban descended. Mm -hmm. And so he's like, they, they were able to check a box because of Matthew Iglesias. And nobody, won't say and as he would acknowledge, nobody before. pretends that like that is the goal. Right. Yeah, no, that's uh, absolutely true. So I am looking forward to it, but you may not be. <laughs> Uh, moving on, we're going to talk right now about Andrew Tate. Uh, there's been some developments in Andrew Tate's situation. Uh, this is from the Washington Post. Romanian prosecutors announced Tuesday that internet personality and self-described misogynist Andrew Tate and his brother have been indicted on charges of human trafficking, rape, and forming an organized crime group. I'm going to keep reading from the Post here because it's very specific um, and it's, it's useful to be precise. The, indi the indictment marks the end of a criminal investigation into Tate and two Romanian associates. As prosecutors referred the case for trial, the prosecutor's statement said the injured parties were, quote, sexually exploited by group members and forced to produce online pornography through acts of, quote, violence and mental coercion. The legal team for the Tate brothers described the move as, quote, undoubtedly predictable. Uh, they're putting forward this uh, basically stance that they're kind of excited and eager to confront these charges because, um, quote, it will undoubtedly substantiate the brothers' claims of innocence. So remember, they were arrested in Romania in December. They do have dual British and American citizenship. They were moved to house arrest back in March. Uh, prosecutors are saying that they, th these four, Tate and his brother and the other two, formed a crime group for human trafficking in Romania, Britain, and the United States. Um, here's more from the prosecutors. The injured persons were recruited by the foreign nationals by misleading them about the intention to establish a marriage-slash-cohabitation relationship and the existence of real feelings of love. Um, that one of the suspects charged with rape in relation to two incidents back in March of 2022, so over a year ago, uh, according to prosecutors. What do you make of it, Ryan? You know, it's important to keep in mind the whole idea of uh, innocent until proven guilty, but these guys look guiltier than Trump, even on the classified documents. 
uh, charge. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what evidence comes up, but we have uh, their own testimony kind of through their videos that they do where they talk about ways that they uh, groom young women and traffic them basically over to uh, Romania and then uh, persuade them into uh, into staying and becoming basically sex slaves. Now, uh, they're arguing that that is all done consensually. They all, Prosecutors also have, what, at least seven witnesses. And so depending on what you hear from those witnesses, if, if they can add even one notch uh, to what they have already said publicly, then they, then you have a pretty slam, pretty slam dunk case. So there are messages where Tate has explained to one of the women that he used a webcam business to quote launder money, um, and that he'd been teaching men to start their own quote. It's all a cover. He wrote the Washington Post said assuring her she could trust him. He told the victim that he'd meet her in Romania after taking care of some work in Prague and spoke about the pros the prospect of marriage. This is from a Tate message. I want to know that you are determined, serious about marriage. So all of that is right. uh, very, is obviously like very uh, critical to right. the case. The boyfriend method. Yes. Uh, there's some question about if, if that's all it is, if it's just hideous and disgusting or if it's a crime, uh, I'm fine. <laughs> These guys getting locked up for what, even just what they've been saying publicly, but it, it does appear that it, it goes even beyond that, that that there's, uh, that, you know, the, the charges talk about, you know, violence. Yeah. So not just mental coercion, but also violence. And, you know, this is, this is going to be a real, uh, going forward, and already, we've already seen it happen, but uh, the proliferation of hardcore pornography has made this a real problem for the, so, so both the pro proliferation of hardcore pornography and the proliferation of sort of text message based um, sexual relationships and relationships in general brings this evidence in, and then the Tate brothers can claim this is consensual and that, um, in some sense, it was part of the the sexual relationship right. to it's, Right, have, but if the women claim otherwise, yeah, and, then they're in a lot of trouble. And, and it, it appears like that's likely that the women will claim otherwise. Well, and that's what's so, uh, I think, disturbing is that you can have evidence of something being, you know, on its face right. problematic and people can claim that it's consensual. Right. And, you know, if, if that is popularized and becomes uh, sort of normalized, it be, it's, it's a very serious problem um, for both men and women um, as that kind of stuff happens in the future. It's a big problem for courts uh, in our legal system. It's a big challenge for courts in the legal system, but uh, it's not great for men or for women um, because it makes it really, really hard to get justice. Related to this, I wanted to get your thoughts on the on a new piece. Uh, if you can put up this second element here, it's a tweet from my uh, colleague, Murtaza Hussein, who's sharing a, a new article in New Lines magazine, which is headlined, How Andrew Tate and the Far Right Made Common Cause with Islamists, uh, subhead, Western groups find in Muslim communities what they believe is a prototype for a social contract free of wokeism and women's liberation. A uh, story by uh, Rasha Al-Akidi and Lydia Wilson. I suggest people check it out. Uh, but it, it, it opens with a couple examples of things that we've probably all, we've all seen kind of as we've watched online culture evolve, which is dudes who started out 
as like proud Islamophobes, mm-hmm. uh, whether in post 9-11 or, or more recently, uh, burning the Quran, uh, you know, warning of the, the kind of the, the Muslim hordes are going to take over Europe and the United States and the Hamas is coming through the southern border. And those same, not just that, not just that political tendency, but that too, but those same dudes now completely lining up with a kind of much, with, with a very conservative uh, interpretation of Islam and going to uh, protests where our Quran is being burned and protesting that. Mm-hmm. Saying how how dare you, and seeing in their warped vision uh, a like they like as they describe a prototype of a society that's free of wokeism, and uh, the dudes over at uh, Chapo Trap House and elsewhere have been like call, have been predicting this arc, yeah. That that uh, that a lot of these right wing influencers are like, why don't they just just cut out the middleman and go straight to kind of far-right Islam, mm-hmm. uh, and here, we, here we're seeing it develop. Yeah. Well, this is another really interesting tweet from Murtaza. He says, when I first moved to the U.S., I was actually surprised how many Muslims were sympathetic to the GOP, even in post-9-11 years, and in places like Chicago and Michigan suburbs, they were just waiting for a moment. They became 10% less hostile to return. Right. And the Michigan suburbs have been interesting, Dearborn mm-hmm. area, because we've seen the uh, sort of conservative Muslim communities in in the Dearborn area make common cause with uh, right, they had that Christians. Pride, pride fight recently. Recently, right. the pride fight, but also the books in schools. Mm-hmm. Was like like uh, it was in the fall uh, around an election, um, coming together and making a very robust protest, and I think a morally correct protest, we'd probably disagree on that, against books in schools. And then you had the American Federation um, of Teachers on the other side of it, siding with the schools. And it's just like, yeah, this, these things getting mixed up is is completely fac- fascinating and blended together. Um, there's some talk in sort of conservative circles about the phenomenon of you know, young men following Andrew Tate um, I don't think it's Tate specific. I don't think it's Islam specific. I do think you're going to see healthier uh, this this kind of two sides of the coin, like people's angst, especially young men's angst and anguish in this world where it's actually very difficult for young men and young women too. Like we're seeing depression rates increase. Mm-hmm. We're seeing all kinds of really bad mas- metrics increase when it comes to mental health and physical health. Um, some people are going to take that out in a healthy way. Some people are going to find really unhealthy ways to, to channel it. And misogyny is going to be one of those ways. And I'm not saying that's affiliated with religion at all. I'm saying, it's affiliated right. with, in this case, Andrew Tate, um, and that that sort of version of a masculinity that's less less than healthy, we'll say. Yeah. Um, toxic masculinity is a real thing. It's not yeah. masculinity itself, and I think that's a mistake the left often makes when they talk about mas- toxic masculinity. They act as though masculinity is necessarily toxic. There are, of course, expressions of masculinity and femininity that can be toxic, and I think the more we see people try to uh, find relief from the pains of, of living modern life. Um, they're going to go in, in both unhealthy and, and healthy places. And uh, Andrew Tate would be an unhealthy place. <laughs> right. And, and Islam, just like Christianity, you know, lives on a spectrum from, you know, liberal to almost secular, uh, all the way over uh, to, the far, to the far right. And I'm curious if 
the kind of if Republicans are seeing a real opening here because it has always struck me as an odd alliance that you that you had so many kind of secular borderline atheist liberals allying with explicitly conservative uh, Muslims in ways that they yes. would not align with explicitly conservative Christians. Yes. And, in some, and, and I feel like maybe they felt comfortable making that alliance because the numbers were so small. Yeah. Uh, that, That's because it was politically convenient. Right. And, and they, were, they, weren't, weren't, they, they could be for pluralism as long as the conservative Muslim portion of their coalition stayed below 20% or something like that, then right. pluralism is fine. <laughs> if, if, they're, if they're 50 plus percent and have voting power, yeah. the, and you, you, you saw some uh, liberals in, in, uh, in that Michigan town saying, wait a minute, when we were in power, you know, we were pluralistic. You know, we made sure that there were ordinances that allowed for the call to prayer to happen five times a day. Mm-hmm. Now you're in power and you're not operating in a pluralistic way. But what is like, pluralism? They're like, well, I think pluralism is fairly, pluralism is kind of like. I don't know, because you, know. you can't have pluralism if you're saying that it's hate speech to well, that's refuse to use compelled speech. So like preferred pronouns, for instance, and you know, right, disagree that would, on that what that is. Tol- that wouldn't be pluralistic and tolerant. Yeah. yeah, based on like our interpretation of civil rights law and uh, where that conversation is going. So it's, it's almost like you can't have this concept of pluralism that in the aughts made a little bit more sense. The formula mm-hmm. made a little bit more sense when you uh, start to have what I would argue is sort of an, an intolerant approach to religion or an intolerant approach it becomes to, more tribal. Yeah, and it's it, hard So to you do. try to have a coalition of tribes, which is, those are not very stable. This is like the biggest, deepest problem. Coalition in of interest groups right is now. one thing, coalition of tribes, it's only gonna last so long. Well, Ryan, what is on, what, what's your point today? I'm put my glasses on here yeah, so I can read my good. point. There's long been a saying in American politics that our elections begin in Iowa and end in Florida. And the result was that our political system disproportionately handed out goodies to just those two states. It didn't make much sense, but it did make us obese with massive corn subsidies for Iowa and sugar subsidies for Florida. And of course, whatever the bloodthirsty diaspora in Miami wanted was theirs from both parties with no questions asked about whether it was actually in our regional or national interest. How else can you get a counterproductive embargo of Cuba to last this long? But Iowa and Florida are now both solidly Republican states. The silver lining for the rest of the country is that we can now start to make policy decisions based on whether or not something is a good idea rather than pandering to a few votes in South Florida. Now, if you remember back to the last State of the Union, Joe Biden was caught on a hot mic buttonholing Bob Menendez, who's the Cuban-American chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee and the chamber's most aggressive Cuba hawk on the Democratic side. He said he wanted to talk. Bob, I gotta talk to you about Cuba. Okay, I'm serious. Now there's movement in Venezuela too. Late last month, the newly restored Brazilian president, Lula da Silva, made a big shift in foreign policy toward the South American country. Instead of recognizing this guy, Juan Guaido, the man the U.S. sort of pretends is president of Venezuela, he invited the guy who actually governs the country, whether we like it or not, Hugo Chavez's successor, Nicolas Maduro. Yet Venezuela, hit with some of the toughest sanctions in the world, remains an economic basket case. The result has been a staggering outflow of refugees, with nearly 200,000 winding up at our southern border last year. 
Former Obama National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes, now with Pod Save America, responded to Lula's recognition of Maduro recently. And when it comes to sanctions on Venezuela, the Biden administration has clearly lost the Pod Save Bros. Take a listen. Clearly, the U.S. has to make a pretty big shift in its Venezuela policy because the idea of like just not recognizing this guy's president doesn't work. And meanwhile, we've exacerbated the humanitarian crisis there with their sanctions that has contributed significantly to people coming to our border. A, a quarter of the population has left the country. We need some <laughs> agreement that lifts a whole bunch of sanctions, that sets an election um, that we promise to actually respect the result of, you know, even if we don't like the results and hopefully we do like the results, uh, you know, but uh, that allows for kind of a reset uh, of what's happening between the U.S. and Latin America generally, Venezuela specifically. I would hope, again, that Cuba is a part of this. Lula also, I think, could be a source of useful tension. But keep in mind, a lot of people want to say, oh, this is just Lula. Ben also made the point that the U.S. isn't just out of step with one leftist leader in Brazil, but we're basically losing the entire region. A lot of people want to say, oh, this is just Lula. It's not. It's it's Lula in Brazil. It's Boric in Chile. It's Petro in Colombia. Yeah. It's AMLO in Mexico. It's like yeah. all the major Latin American countries. There is nobody with us in this kind of weird Miami-driven hardline policy. It, it, so this... While meeting somewhere in the middle uh, between where we currently are and where Lula is, is I think the smart way to go. And honestly, this kind of pressure is not the worst thing to, to try to shake that loose. So in Congress, four Democrats are circulating a letter that I obtained that sort of calls on the Biden administration to lift sanctions on Venezuela. The letter is written by Jim McGovern, Greg Meeks, Joaquin Castro, and Barbara Lee. And it reads... Because we share your view that human rights should be at the center of U.S. foreign policy, we have been deeply troubled by the extensive reporting on the indiscriminate and counterproductive impacts on the Venezuelan people of the secondary and sectoral sanctions imposed by the Trump administration. These kinds of sanctions have often been found to be ineffective in achieving their objectives and are profoundly incoherent from a human rights perspective. In our view, to purposely continue contributing to economic hardship experienced by an entire population is immoral and unworthy of the United States. That is why many of us have previously called on your administration to pursue a better strategy to address the rollback of democracy and the severe violations of fundamental rights committed by the Maduro government. Now, all that is good, and it makes a strong case to immediately and unilaterally lift the sanctions, which makes a line in the last paragraph of the letter strange when it adds, quote, Overcoming Venezuela's multifaceted political and human rights crisis and, faci and facilitating the country's desperately needed economic recovery must go hand in hand, unquote. Now, typically, what a sentence like that means is that sanctions will only be lifted if Venezuela makes political concessions. Yet the lawmakers just acknowledged in the same letter that sanctions are inhumane and don't actually work to pressure political change anyway. It's a measure of how addicted to sanctions the U.S. is that language like this shows up even in a letter designed to move in the right direction and one signed by people like Barbara Lee and Jim McGovern who've spoken eloquently about the cruelty of sanctions. Now, the letter appears to be something of a response to pressure that McGovern has been getting from anti-war activists uh, back home. And he has not taken action. Ooh. 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 He has not signed this letter calling for an end to these sanctions after telling us for years he's committed to stopping endless and needless deaths in Venezuela. Again, this is confusing and it's also inexcusable. So Emily, these activists have been calling on him to sign on to a
what point are you looking at? All right, well, we're going to talk about the tragedy unfolding at sea um, because there's, I think, maybe an interesting lesson in all of it. And to be clear, this is a story that's changing minute by minute. And as we're recording this, the latest is that some of the folks on the rescue mission have heard sounds that are like a banging noise coming from the area that they're searching. The actually efforts to sort of pinpoint, target the location of that sound have been unsuccessful. And this is the story of five people being lost at sea in the Titan submersible that was on a tourist expedition to view the Titanic. It costs about $250,000, and these folks right now are entirely lost at sea. They have about, from what we know, 24 hours at most uh, until about Thursday morning. We're, we're here on Wednesday, until about Thursday morning with the amount of oxygen that uh, people estimate is in that submersible um, before they run out and are not able to survive. So the, the window is narrowing. Experts say the longer it takes to locate people, uh, the less chance that they have of survival, which is tragically uh, logic. But it's not really a good time to play you know, armchair scientist from inside a news studio or pile on the decision to uh, sort of go on this, this expedition. Um, but you know, it's, it's a good time to pray for their safe return and uh, an unfortunate, I would say, opportunity to reflect on humans evolving, ever-evolving relationship with risk itself. So just, again, some quick facts from what we know right now. Within about two hours, Ocean Gate Expeditions, that the, that's the company that puts together these excursions, um, they lost contact with the Titan. It's a 21-foot submersible vessel. Um, as far as we know, it's about 900 miles east of Cape Cod. So they are searching an area that's roughly the size of Connecticut, about 900 miles off, east off of the coast of Cape Cod, and about 13,000 feet deep. You have four passengers that were on board and the pilot that are now lost. Um, the New York Post says that this rescue, if it is successful, would be the deepest recovery mission in history. The deepest recovery mission in history. So they're about 12,500 feet below uh, the surface. And that's a, obviously an incredible task, not only to, to take people down to that level for uh, the, the viewing of the Titanic, but to then have search and rescue crews uh, basically trying to find a needle in a haystack in this vast expanse of the ocean. It seems maybe like it's, it should be very easy because we know where the uh, submersible went down, we know when it went down, and uh, you know, that, that you know, seems like it should be easy to kind of pinpoint the location, but of course it's not, and people have at this point been running, or have been trying to find it for days. Safety concerns had been raised in the past. This is CNN. They write, in 2018, the Manned Underwater Vehicles Committee of the Marine Technology Society penned a letter expressing concern over what they referred to as ocean gate, again, that's the company, their, quote, experimental approach with the Titan, the vessel that's now lost, and its planned expedition to the site of the Titanic wreckage. Quote, our apprehension is that the current experimental approach adopted by OceanGate could result in negative outcomes from minor to catastrophic that would have serious consequences for everyone in the industry. That's a quote from the letter. And of 
course, tragically, that seems to have been prescient. We're going to find out more and more in the days ahead, and this story is evolving again very much. But if we put up an archived version of the website, again, I think this is uh, at the very, at least as of now, an opportunity to reflect on our, as human beings, our relationship with with risk. Um, that's the, from the archived version of the website, you can go now and actually look at how they advertised this Titanic expedition. Uh, there they say, right there, explore the Titanic. Um, and it costs, in their FAQ, they say it costs $250,000. We can also roll some footage from an ad that was on their website as well. Uh, you hear them say quotes like, this is not a thrill ride for tourists. Quote, it's not a ride at Disney. And quote, it's very engineered and very safe. Again, it's eerie to reflect on all of this now. And no matter, you know, you, you can be the safest thing in the world. There's always some, some risk in involved in even driving a car or taking a bike. There's always risk that's going to be involved. And so, you know, when, when you're taking, um, you know, when you're viewing something like the Titanic, some 13,000 feet under the sea, of course, you're always going to have to uh, accept that there's a level of danger. And we do that every single day with everything that we do. You can never fully eliminate risk, um, but this is a lot of risk to take, and it's a lot of money to spend on a risk. So it's more, more than what an average American makes in a year by far, much, much more than what an average American uh, makes in a year. And just for a brief window of time. So out of curiosity, after I saw that $250,000 price tag, uh, I looked up what the most expensive ticket was on the Titanic itself. And this is really interesting. It's, it's kind of hard to nail down an inflation-adjusted price for that most expensive ticket, but none of the estimates that I saw put it very far north of $100,000. So in 2023, people are paying more than double the price of the people who perished in the Titanic to tour their graveyard. It's a, it's a really strange arc of history right there. They're paying more than twice the price to see something that is broken, to see something that has failed. It's like an inverse, a weird inverse. And it's especially interesting when you consider what one economist calculated back in 2021. Yahoo Finance reported at the time on those numbers. I'm reading from this report in 1913, so that's at the end of the Gilded Age and the year after the Titanic sank in 1912. The Rockefeller, Frick, Carnegie, and Baker families, names all tied to monopolistic power, held 0.85% of the country's total wealth. The richest 0.01%, around 18,000 U.S. families, have also surpassed now the wealth levels reached in the Gilded Age. These families hold 10% of the country's wealth today. By comparison, in 1913, the top 0.01% held 9% of U.S. wealth and a mere 2% in the late 1970s. 2% in the late 1970s. So that's a swing from the Gilded Age to the late 70s and then a swing from then until now. Now, Ryan and I would probably disagree on the morality of, of these different levels, these varying levels of income inequality, but compared with 1912, financialization completely dominates our economy at this point. And so, so much of that wealth isn't even tied up in industries that actually build and create, that, but industries that sort of shuffle uh, data and shuffle money around. Now, morbid curiosity is a very real thing. It's inevitable and sort of understandably so. Whenever it's monetized, it can be really gross, but it's not sort of categorically bad or new. What's different now is our daily levels of comfort 
here in the West. That's different in the history of human existence. I don't mean that psychologically either. I think it's pretty clear, as Arthur Brooks has calculated, that as we have gotten more materially comfortable over the last half century or so, we've actually gotten increasingly less happy. But we need certain things that we're now rich enough to avoid in many, many cases. So physical labor, natural sunlight, fresh food that we grow ourselves and we labor to grow ourselves. And losing these things is driving us crazy in some respects. And we're so desperate for relief, we're so desperate for meaning and for purpose that we're looking to really unhealthy solutions. Speaking about risk, my colleague Molly Hemingway, almost 10 years ago now, back in 2014, wrote a column with this very arresting headline, quote, we need to get more comfortable with people dying in space. I'm gonna read this quote. Part of the reason why the American public was so upset by the loss of the Columbia crew back in 2003 is because they were perceived to have died for something trivial. The trip was mostly known for performing children's science fair experiments, she wrote, a private or public exploration and settlement program based on larger ideals, national security, advancing the human condition, fleeing from religious persecution, or even just to test the limits of human accomplishments would change the risk calculus. Now, she was clear that that wasn't to downplay any of the tragedies involved and that it would be absolutely wonderful if we made every new discovery, not just in space, but here on Earth, without losing anybody. It's obviously unrealistic. We need bravery. We need a thirst for adventure. We need a healthy relationship with risk to advance forward. We always have. But our comfortable current risk-averse society could very quickly become a risk hungry society, and that can go in very different direction. So the ultra-wealthy elites who shelled out $250,000 to take part in an experimental excursion to the mass grave of prior adventurers, that could be a sign that we're not prepared to channel the restlessness of modern life here in the West in a way that is healthy at all. We are now four days after a deadline has passed in which Congress had statutorily required the Biden administration to declassify all information that it has related to COVID origins and specifically the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Uh, we're joined today by Justin Goodman of the White Coast White Coat Waste Project uh, to talk about the reporting that. Uh, that his organization has been able to do over the last couple of weeks related to COVID origins and also uh, this surprising delay on the part of the Biden administration and what that may mean, given the fact that it is that he is in, as we sit here, in violation of a statute. So, Justin, thank you for joining us. Pleasure to be here. As viewers of this show know, uh, Matt Taibbi and Mike Schellenberger, uh, maybe a week and a half ago at this point, were able to identify the uh, names of three researchers at, at the Wuhan lab uh, who U.S. intelligence believe uh, were hospitalized with COVID-like symptoms in November 2019, uh, which not only kind of upends the timeline of the Hunan seafood market, uh, argument that the that it spilled over from some type of a pangolin or pangolin or uh, bat or something else that the, whatever the claim was at the time that would require there to be a time machine involved and so pushing it back uh, to November if that's confirmed uh, eliminates that possibility and if if these workers themselves were the ones sick, and that also uh, increases the circumstantial evidence uh, that it would have something to do with this lab. And the specific identity of one of the researchers, Ben Hu, uh, has been the focus of subsequent reporting 
uh, both uh, by me over at The Intercept and also at The Wall Street Journal since then, because Ben, who was a, uh, a researcher on projects that involved uh, manipulating coronaviruses so that they would be more infectious toward uh, humans. And so can you talk a little bit about what, what you found in, in the paperwork that you had gotten from uh, the federal government through, through FOIA work and how that became much more important given the revelations of the names of these researchers? Absolutely. You know, the wet market uh, proponents who've been pushing that fake news for three years have been saying to follow the science. But we're, what we've been doing since late 2019 is following the money. We followed the money from the NIH to the Wuhan lab. We followed the money from the NIH to gain a function of the Wuhan lab. And now we followed the money from NIH to possible patient zero. Ben Hu, who, if you look at the preceding years leading up to the pandemic, uh, basically had laid out the blueprint for SARS-CoV-2. Um, the documents we have directly tie Ben Hu to two different U.S. grants that we know were funding gain-of-function experiments at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, one from Dr. Fauci's National Institutes of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and one from USAID's PREDICT program. Ben Hu was a co listed as a co-investigator on those grants, paperwork that Peter Daszak personally filled out, describing his collaboration with the Wuhan lab, identifying Ben Hu as a co-investigator on those two U.S. grants that uh, totaled $41 million in taxpayer funds. Now, a government accountability office report that came out last week uh, detailed that about $1.4 million of that $41 million in taxpayer money went to the Wuhan Institute. We're trying to figure out exactly how much went to Ben Hu specifically, but if Ben Hu is determined to be patient zero, then our documents are the smoking gun. Yeah, no, absolutely, it sounds like that. And there are critics who would say, for instance, this money, even if even if this money was going to Ben Hu, Ben Hu's research couldn't have possibly created a lab leak that spreads COVID. Um, and Justin, you study this very closely and you have been now for years. What do you say to that uh, argument? So actually the thing that first tipped us off to the Wuhan lab's relationship with the National Institutes of Health back in late 2019, and uh, remember, we met with the Trump administration in January 2020, before there was even a pandemic declared, to point out that there was this relationship between the NIH and the Wuhan lab and that they should look into it. There were crickets at that time from the administration, just for the record. Um, so we were first tipped off by a 2017 paper that Ben Hu was the lead author on with Peter Daszak and others detailing how they were captured, they were collecting wild back coronaviruses around China in remote parts of the country and then bringing them back to the lab and engineering them. But not only that, not only is this there this published paper trail of Ben Hu's involvement in back coronavirus experimentation and creating these super viruses, these chimeric super viruses. He was one of the people involved in the infamous diffuse proposal that was denied by the Defense Department in 2018, which was a blueprint for exactly the, creating the exact virus that caused the COVID pandemic, SARS-CoV-2, by inserting the, the spike protein onto the wild bat coronavirus. Ben Hu was involved in the creation and uh, uh, conception of that virus got denied by the Defense Department, gets sick a couple of years later, and then a virus is unleashed in the city of Wuhan at his doorstep that resembles exactly the virus he described in this proposal that he wanted to create with U.S. tax dollars. 
So, I mean, at this point, there is not a doubt in my mind that a lab leak is the cause of this pandemic. I mean, there's literally no evidence to support a wet market theory unless, as Ryan suggests, there was a time machine because all the wet market theories propose that the virus broke out in December 2019. Here we have Ben Hu and others sick in November 2019, possibly before that. Hmm. Yeah, and I think it's worth lingering on the diffuse uh, proposal for a moment because as we await uh, the declassified information that we're hopefully going to get, and we're going to continue to put pressure on the administration until they until they release this information, you're going to start seeing kind of a, a, a battle royale, I think, between uh, multiple different camps within the United States, but then also camps within China, each trying to blame each other for the research that ended up leading to this leak. Let's, let's say everybody eventually stipulates that, okay, it was actually research that we were doing over in this lab. Uh, you're going to see Americans, I think, saying, well, this was a Chinese kind of uh, military project, and that there was Chinese, and we, and it is the case that there were, you know, there was Chinese military funding of Wuhan lab, and so there's some evidence, you know, there, that, that there's some plausibility to that argument. At the same time, you have uh, you have Ben Hu, you have Peter Daszak, others applying to the Pentagon uh, for for money. So it. I, I'm already I'm, I'm already kind of finding it rich that we're going to see the arguments that well this is kind of uh, this was military funding how dare you uh, when it, they were actually trying to get uh, U.S. military funding and did get U.S. AID funding which is kind of the the kind of sketchy agency that is always involved uh, when when you sort of want to layer between what's going on and what's actually going on and so can you talk a little bit about this this DARPA. Uh, this attempt to get DARPA funding? Sure. I mean, I'll start by saying, I mean, shipping tax dollars to a military-linked animal laboratory run by a foreign adversary was a recipe from the, for disaster from the very beginning. Yeah, not not well thought out, going. perhaps. Yeah. yeah, whether the money was coming from the DOD, the State Department, or the NIH, or anybody else for that matter. I think um, you guys just I questioned the science. <laughs> the scientists. <laughs> yeah, question the, the scientists. scientists. Yes. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, so, I mean, going back to the diffuse proposal, I mean, this is, it, to me, this was just these, these uh, experimenters kind of being honest about what their intentions were. It was to create the super virus. And I think, you know, the, uh, the fact that they did apply to the United States Department of Defense to create, depending on what your point of view is, a bioweapon. Uh, gives some insight into the nature of these programs. I mean, ultimately, we're looking at a situation where, you know, the Chinese and the American government might agree that, okay, let's do this together because if something goes wrong, there's mutually assured destruction and also mutually, uh, mutual, mutually um, like shared distributed blame. blame. Yeah. You know what I mean? Exactly, because right now, U.S. and China are going to be equally to blame if it's a lab leak. And you're not really going to be able to hold anybody accountable. And I think that's exactly why the, the Biden administration is dragging its feet right now. I mean, all signs point to a lab leak. And if it's true, it's their fault. Yeah. And they're not and they don't. You know, so they don't. And the fact that Democrats are in the White House and running the Senate right now, I mean, no one really has an appetite for beating up on the NIH or the State Department uh, in terms of, you know, so I think that. The timing of this is unfortunate, but I think the timing of this is also it was designed to be this way, that this information came out at a time where it really doesn't benefit anybody at this point. Uh, it's only going to cause harm to China-U.S. relations. And that's, again, I think, part of the point of all of this. 
And I think it looks like increasingly the Trump administration was dragging their feet as well because they had information implicating our government and we didn't get any of this information as much as Republicans are posturing now back then, um, probably because our intelligence agencies were aware of some of this. Justin, um, over at White Coat Waste, you guys are tracking uh, sort of money being sent with no accountability for crazy projects and labs around the world. And on that note, I wanna ask what we know about gain of function right now, the state of US funding for gain of function research, especially in places like the Wuhan Institute of Virology where we don't really have a lot of oversight. We're not uh, seemingly even interested in providing oversight. Uh, after all of this, where does this, where is this money going right now, if anywhere? Right. Great question, Emily. And I just want to start by saying one more thing that I forgot. We have emails, actually the, the same uh, tranche of emails that gave us the Ben Hu records tying him to these grants were also the original emails showing that Fauci's division at the NIH were actively conspiring with Peter Daszak and the Wuhan Institute in writing in 2016 to bypass the gain-of-function ban that was in place um, mm -hmm. by, the, by the Obama Biden administration. So again, there's a lot of evidence that we were very intentionally trying to make this project happen in China, bending over backwards to send money there and get approvals to do this dangerous animal experimentation at the Wuhan Institute. In terms of where things stand now, there's lots of legislation out there looking to crack down or outright ban gain-of-function research. Here's what we've done to date. We've spent the last three years trying to uh, find, expose, defund these foreign labs, China and otherwise. Uh, in the federal spending bill last year, we were able to cut funding for gain-of-function research in what they call countries of concern, uh, also known as foreign adversaries, Russia, Russia China. Um, really, those were the only countries that were receiving money at that time. Um, so we've also now disqualified the Wuhan Institute from getting any future funding uh, from the NIH. We're hoping to make that permanent. So Wuhan is disqualified. The Wuhan lab itself is disqualified from future taxpayer funding. No gain of function funding is going to go to foreign enemy laboratories. However, there are still 27 other laboratories, including other CCP-run laboratories, animal laboratories in China that are eligible to receive money from the NIH and that are receiving money from the NIH. We also just finally cut off money to Russian laboratories. Until recently, taxpayers were funding laboratories in Russia as well. So we've cut the money for gain-of-function in foreign countries, but there's no restrictions on gain-of-function here in the United States beyond what existed already that allowed some of these projects to go forward. So we're working with Congress to permanently uh, defund all animal experimentation in countries of concern like Russia and China, Obviously, we know what happened in the Wuhan Institute should be a signal that this is a bad idea. Uh, and we're also trying to crack down on gain of function in the United States because some people are arguing that we, instead of offshoring it, we should bring it here where we have better oversight. Um, but again, that's just as bad. I mean, we're, that's basically looking to create a Wuhan of the West out here in the United States, and it's going to happen. It's just a matter of time. So we're doing everything we can to make sure that taxpayer funding is not going to these foreign countries that don't have our best interest in mind and for dangerous experimentation that can cause a pandemic on our shores. And, and it's, it's good that NIH funding to the Wuhan lab is, is being cut off, uh, and, and it's good that there's kind of being pressure being applied. But I'm curious are those labs going to keep running? Because let's say that the NIH uh, doesn't fund the Wuhan lab anymore, but if uh, the CCP is like, you know what, we actually kind of think that that research is still useful to us for whatever reason, like as people who have respiratory systems, 
Like, we're, we don't really care. I mean, we wanna know the answer to who funded this. Uh, and and we, one reason we wanna know it is so that we can kind of target it and there can be accountability. But we also don't want there to be pandemics. Like, we don't, it doesn't really matter, you know, who paid for that day's work of labor for the, the lab worker uh, who then, you know, sneezed at the wet market or whatever and ended up uh, with, you know, 20 plus million people dead and lives upended and uh, immense trauma and the world changed. Like, so what, what are, what's the path toward just stopping that research globally? Because, the, you know, we have to be lucky every single time. The virus only has to be lucky once. Mm. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think there's been conversations about weapons conventions and things like that covering these type of, uh, you know, this. I mean, I, I would argue that this, this, you know, crosses the line into bioweapons research. Again, it's all in the eye of the beholder and what their intentions are. And I think we need stricter rules. Certainly in the United States, we shouldn't be funding this stuff. But certainly globally, we should probably agree that this is bad for everybody. But if you have ill intentions and you want to create a bioweapon, there's going to be plenty of opportunities to do it. It's very inexpensive to do. You can do it very secretively. And to be totally honest, I wouldn't be shocked if the U.S. is secretly trying to figure out ways to fund this stuff overseas. There's already dangerous loopholes that don't track subgrants. So after mm -hmm. EcoHealth gives money to Wuhan, Wuhan could regrant that money somewhere else, and we would have no idea. Um, so I think there's there's also a lot of spending accountability and transparency that has to happen in the United States to make sure we can follow the money where it's going and ensure we're not funding these projects like Fauci did secretively in Wuhan in the first place that brought us this pandemic that we're still dealing with. Ryan reported a great story out over at The Intercept on all of this. Justin, uh, we really appreciate you coming on as well, Senior Vice President over at White Coat Waste. Your insight is always so appreciated, and so is your FOIA acumen. You guys get everything. <laughs> We've got a good attorney on retainer. Yeah, without, a re without an attorney nowadays, you get zero from FOIA. Yeah. Just nothing. Yeah. Absolutely nothing. Unfortunately. Well, Justin, thank you so much. We always appreciate it. Thank you both. That does it for us on today's edition of CounterPoints, the second edition of the show in the new studio. That's Again, right. big thanks to McGriffin. I heard someone in the comments yeah. refer to Mac and Griffin <laughs> as McGriffin, and I think that's really beautiful and adorable. So they are McGriffin from now on, and we are very grateful to them and very grateful to all of you for your help and for watching every week. Programming note, I'll be gone next week. That's why I was here yesterday. He's just never Crystal, here anymore. Just never here. You, you should see his yeah. notebook right now, by the way. If you've ever wanted a glance inside Ryan Grimm's famed notebook, mind, yeah. it just says Obama. <laughs> oh, <fuck. laughs> it just says a page of his notebook open right. to Obama. What was I going to say about Obama? Nobody knows. I don't remember. It's not important. <laughs> um, that, but anyway, Crystal will be here, so you'll have a ladies' day on Wednesday. That's right. Sounds fun. Uh, we'll, we'll do the uh, Today Show fourth hour thing with two glasses of white wine on. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> All right. Well, Ryan, we'll see you the week after yes. that. And uh, we'll see everybody next week back here for CounterPoints. Trinity School of Natural Health can help you be part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry. With an education that empowers communities, Trinity grads can change lives by applying natural health principles and techniques in holistic practices or stores selling nourishing health products. 
Offering 19 online programs that fit your busy schedule, you'll get training to help turn your passion into a career. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next-day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.